11. Turner the manner of the American Indians. These women wore garments of blue cotton shaped much like the gowns of the Russian peasants. Near them a boat was moving along the shore, carrying a crew consisting of a man, a boy, and a dog. The boat, laden with hay, was evidently destined for cows and a market. Near it was another boat rowed by two men, carrying six women and a quantity of vegetables. Some of the women were assorting the vegetables, and all watched our boat with interest. From the laughter as we passed I concluded the remarks on our appearance were not complimentary. The scene on this part of the river was picturesque. There were many boats, from the little canoe or dugout, propelled by one man, up to the barge holding several tons of merchandise. The one-man boats were managed with a double-bladed oar, such as I have already described. Nearly every boat that carried a mast had a flag or streamer attached to it, and some had dragons' heads on their bows. Would Lindley Murray permit me to say that I saw one barge manned by ten women, though subsisting mainly by agriculture and pastoral pursuits? The managers devote considerable time to fishing. One fishing implement bore a faint resemblance to a hand cart, as it had an axle with two small wheels and long handles. A frame over the axle sustained a pole, to which a net was fastened. The machine could be pushed into the water and the net lowered to any position suitable for entrapping fish. Occasionally I saw a native seated on the top of a tripod about ten feet high, placed at the edge of the river. Here he fished with pole, net, or spear, according to circumstances. He always appeared to me as if left there during a freshet and waiting for the river to rise and let him off. At one place two boys were seated cross-legged near the water and fishing with long poles. They were so intent in looking at us that they did not observe the swell of the steamer until thoroughly drenched by it. As they stood dripping on the sand they laughed good-naturedly at the occurrence, and soon seated themselves again at their employment. Late in the afternoon I saw a village larger than all the others, lying in a bend of the river, stretching three or four miles along the bank and a less distance away from it. This was Igun, the principal place of the Chinese on the Amur, and once possessing considerable power. Originally the fort and town of Igun were on the left bank of the river, four miles below the present site. The location was changed in 1690, and when the new town was founded it grew quite rapidly. For a long time it was a sort of botany bay for Peking, and its early residents were mostly exiles. At present its population is variously estimated from 20 to 50,000. The Chinese do not give any information on this point, and the Russian figures concerning it are based upon estimates. Igun was formerly the capital of the Chinese province of the Arnor but is now destitute of that honor. The seat of government was removed about 20 years ago to Saigar. As we approached Igun I could see below it many herds of cattle and horses driven by mounted men. There was every appearance of agricultural prosperity. It was near the end of harvest, and most of the grain was stacked in the fields. Here and there were laborers at work, and I could see many people on the bank fronting the river. Around the city were groves enclosing the temples which held the shrines consecrated to Mongol worship. As the cross is reverenced by the followers of the Christian faith, the city had a somber look. As all the houses were black, the buildings were of wood plastered with mud, and nearly all of one story. Over the temples in the city there were flagstaffs, but with no banners hanging from them or on the outer walls. The governor's house and the arsenals were similarly provided with tall poles rising from the roofs. But here as elsewhere no flags were visible, 
Along the beach there were many rafts of logs beside numerous boats either drawn on shore or moored to posts or stakes. Fishermen and boys were sitting cross-legged near the water, and the inattention of several caused their drenching by our swell. Idle men stood on the bank above the beach, nearly all smoking their little brass pipes with apparent unconcern. Men and women, principally the latter, were carrying water from the river in buckets, which they balanced from the ends of a neck yoke. We dropped anchor and through a line that was made fast by a young manager. On shore we met several residents, who greeted us civilly and addressed the captain in Russian. Most of the manager merchants have learned enough Russian to make a general conversation, especially in transacting business. I was introduced as an American who had come a long distance purposely to see a goon. The governor was absent, so that it was not possible to call on him. We were shown to a temple near at hand a building 15 feet by 30, with a red curtain at the door and a thick carpet of matting over a brick pavement. The altar was veiled, but its covering was lifted to allow me to read, if I could, the inscription upon it. It stood close to the entrance, like the screen near the door of a New York bar room. There were several pictures on the walls, a few idols, and some lanterns painted in gaudy colors. Outside there were paintings over the door, some representing Chinese landscapes. The windows were of lattice work, the roof had a dragon's head at each end of the ridge, and a mosaic pavement extended like a sidewalk around the entire building. Our guide, who lived near, invited us to his house. We entered it through his office, which contained a table, three or four chairs, and a few account books. Out of this we walked into a large apartment used for lounging by day and sleeping at night. Its principal furniture was a wide divan, at one side where the bed clothing of three or four persons was rolled into neat bundles. It turned out on inquiry that the man lived in two houses, the principal part of his family being domiciled several squares away. As time pressed we did not stop longer than to thank him for his attention. The streets of Igun reminded me of New York under the contract system four or five years ago. We walked through one street upon a narrow log fixed in the mud, and steadied ourselves against a high fence. On a larger thoroughfare there were some dry spots, but as there were two logs to walk upon we balanced very well. Chinese streets rarely have sidewalks, and every pedestrian must care for himself the best way he can. The rains the week before my visit had reduced the public ways to a disagreeable condition. Were I to describe the measurement of the Broadway of Igun, I should say its length was two miles, more or less, its width fifty feet, and its depth two feet. Our captain carried a sword cane which confused him a little as the lower part occasionally stuck in the mud and came off. This exposition of weapons he evidently wished to avoid. On the principal street I found several stores, and, true to the instinct of the American abroad, stopped to buy something. The stores had the front open to the street, so that one could stand before the counter and make his purchases without entering. The first store I saw had six or seven clerks and very little else and as I did not wish a Chinese clerk I moved to another shop. For the articles purchased I paid only five times their actual value. As I afterward learned, the merchants and their employees appeared to talk Russian quite fluently, and were earnest in urging me to buy. One of them imitated the tactics of Chatham Street, and became very voluble over things I did not want. Holding up an article he praised its good qualities and named its price. Five rubles, very good, five rubles. I shook my head. Four rubles, yes, good, four rubles. Again I made a negation. Three rubles, very good, yes, 
I continued shaking my head as he fell to two and a half, two, and finally to one ruble. I left him at that figure, or it is possible he would have gone still lower. They are great rascals, said Borstein as we walked away. They ask ten times the real price and hope to cheat you in some way. It is difficult to buy anything here for its actual value. We went through more streets and more mud, passing butcher's shops where savage dogs growled with that amiable tongue peculiar to butcher dogs everywhere. We passed tea shops, shoe shops, drug stores, and other establishments, each with a liberal number of clerks. Labor must be cheap, profits large, or business brisk, to enable the merchants to maintain so many employees. At the end of a long street we came to the guardhouse, near the entrance of the military quarters. We entered the dirty barrack, but saw nothing particularly interesting. I attempted to go inside the room where the instruments of punishment were kept, but the guard stood in the way and would not move. The soldiers in this establishment had evidently partaken of a beverage stronger than tea, as they were inclined to too much familiarity. One patted me on the shoulder and pressed my hand affectionately, indulging the while in snatches of Chinese songs. In the prison were two or three unfortunates with their feet shackled so as to prevent their stepping more than four inches at a time. While we stood there a gaily dressed officer rode past us on a magnificent horse, reminding me of an American militia hero on training day. We looked at the fence of palisades, and stepped under the gateway leading to the government quarter. Over the gate was a small room like the drawbridge room in a castle of the Middle Ages. Twenty men could be lodged there to throw arrows, hot water or Chinese perfumery on the invading foe. A manager acquaintance of our captain invited us to visit his house. We entered through the kitchen, where there was a man frying a kind of twisted donut in vegetable oil. The flour he used was ground in the manger mills, and lacked the fineness of European or American flour. Judging by the quantity of food visible the family must have been a large one. The head of the household proclaimed himself the charter, and said he was the proprietor of four wives. I smoked a cigar with him, and during our interview Borstein hinted that we would like to inspect his harem. After a little decorous hesitation, he led us across an open and muddy courtyard to a house where a dozen women were in the confusion of preparing and eating supper. With four wives one must have a proportionate number of servants and retainers, else he cannot maintain style. Such a scene of confusion I never saw before in one man's family. There were twelve or fifteen children of different ages and sexes and not one silent, some were at table, some quarreling, some going to sleep, and some waking, two women were in serious dispute, and the charter words poured out freely, the room was hot, stifling, and filled with as many odors as the city of Cologne, and we were glad to escape into the open air as soon as possible, I did not envy that Mongol gentleman his domestic bliss, and am inclined to think he considered it no joke to be as much married as he was, I did not see any pretty women at Igun, but learned afterward that they exist there. The manger style of hairdressing attracts the eye of a stranger. The men plait the hair after the Chinese manner, shaving the forepart of the head. The women wind theirs in a peculiar knot. In about the position of the French chignon, they pierce this knot with two long pins like knitting needles, and trim it with bright ribbons and real or artificial flowers. The fashion is becoming, and, excluding the needles, I would not be surprised to see it in vogue in Western civilization within half a dozen years. The men wore long blue coats of cotton or silk, generally the former, loose linen trousers, fastened at the knee or made into leggings, and Chinese shoes or boots of skin, 
The women dress in baglets and blue cotton gowns with short, loose sleeves, above which they wear at times a silk cape or mantle. They have earrings, bracelets, and finger rings in profusion, and frequently display considerable taste in their adornment. It was nearly sunset when we landed at Igun, and when we finished our visit to the Tartar family the stars were out. The delay of the boat was entirely to give me a view of a Chinese manger city. Darkness put an end to sightseeing, and so we hastened to the steamer, followed by a large crowd of natives. We took three or four manger merchants as passengers to Blagoveshensk. One of them spent the evening in our cabin, but would neither drink alcoholic beverages nor smoke. This appeared rather odd among a people who smoke persistently and continually. Men, women, and children are addicted to the practice, and the amount of tobacco they burn is enormous. Chapter XVII At daylight on the morning after leaving the goon, we were passing the mouth of the Zaya, a river half a mile wide, flowing with a strong current. It was along this river that the first white men who saw the Amor found their way. It is said to be practicable for steam navigation three or four hundred miles from its mouth. At present four or five thousand peasants are settled along the Zaya, with excellent agricultural prospects. As I came on deck rubbing my half-opened eyes, I saw a well-built town on the Russian shore. Blagoveshensk, said the steward, as he waved his arm in that direction. I well knew that the capital of the province of the Amor was just above the mouth of the Zaya. It stands on a prairie 15 or 20 feet above the river, and when approached from the south its appearance is pleasing. The houses are large and well built, and each has plenty of space around it. Some of them have flower gardens in front, and a public park was well advanced toward completion at the time of my arrival. A wharf extended into the river at an angle of 40 degrees with the shore. The steamer Korsakoff was moored at this wharf, with a barge nearly her own size being goaded tied to the bank just below the wharf, and was welcomed by the usual crowd of soldiers and citizens, with a fair number of managers from the other bank. On landing, I called upon Colonel Pideshank, the governor of the province, and delivered my letters of introduction. The colonel invited me to dine with him that day, and stated that several officers of his command would be present. After this visit and a few others, I went with Captain Borstein to attend the funeral of the late Major General Busey. This gentleman was five years governor of the province of the Amor, and resigned in 1866 on account of ill health. He died on his way to St. Petersburg, and the news of his death reached Blagoveshensk three days before my arrival. I happened to reach the town on the morning appointed for the funeral service. The church was crowded, everybody standing, according to the custom prevailing in Russia. Colonel Pideshank and his officers were in full uniform, and almost all present held lighted candles. Five or six priests, with an archbishop, conducted the ceremonies. The services consisted of a ritual, read and intoned by the priests, with chanting by the choir of male voices. The archbishop was in full robes belonging to his position, and his long gray beard and reverend face gave him a patriarchal appearance. When the ceremony was finished the congregation opened to the right and left to permit the governor and officers to pass out first. From beginning to end the service lasted about an hour. Colonel Pideshank had been governor but a few months, and awaited confirmation in his position. Having served long on the staff of General Busey, he was disposed to follow in the footsteps of his predecessor and carry out his plans for developing the resources of his district. At the appointed hour I went to dine at the governor's where I found eight or ten officers and the young wife of Colonel Pideshank, 
We spent a half hour on the balcony, where there was a charming view of the river and the Chinese shore with its background of mountains. The governor's house was more like a mansion in a venerable town than in a settlement less than ten years old. The reception hall would have made a good ballroom anywhere out of the large cities. The charming young madam did not speak English but was fluent in French. She was from Irkutsk, and had spent several years in the schools and society of St. Petersburg. She had many reminiscences of the capital, and declared herself delighted with her home on the Amur. After dinner we retired to the balcony for prosaic tea drinking and a poetical study of the glories of an autumn sunset behind the hills of Manjuria. There was no hotel in the town, and I had wondered where I should lodge. Before I had been half an hour on shore, I was invited by Dr. Snyder, the surgeon-in-chief of the province, to make my home at his house. The doctor spoke English fluently, and told me he learned it from a young American at Hawaiian several years before. He was ten years in government service at Hawaiian, and met there many of my countrymen. Once he contemplated emigrating to New Bedford at the urgent solicitation of a whaling captain who frequently came to the Okhotsk Sea. Dr. Snyder was from the German provinces of Russia, and his wife, a sister of Admiral Fulium, was born in Sweden. They usually conversed in German but addressed their children in Russian. They had a Swedish housemaid who spoke her own language in the family and only used Russian when she could not do otherwise. Madam Snyder told me her children spoke Swedish and Russian with ease, and understood German very well. They intended having a French or English governess in course of time. I speak, said the doctor, German with my wife, Swedish to the housemaid, Russian to my other servants, French with some of the officers, English with occasional travelers, and a little Chinese and manger with the natives over the river. Blagoveshchensk has a pretty situation and I should greatly prefer it to Nikolaevsk for permanent habitation. In the middle of the Anor Valley and at the mouth of the Zaya, its commercial advantages are good and its importance increases every year. It was founded in 1858 by General Moravif, but did not receive any population worthy of mention until after the Treaty of Igun in 1860. The government buildings are large and well constructed, logs being the material in almost universal use for making walls. A large and finished house for the telegraph was pointed out to me, and several warehouses were in process of erection. Late one afternoon the captain of the steamer Korsakov invited me to visit Sakhalinolahotun city of the Black River on the opposite shore. Though called a city it cannot justly claim more than 2,000 inhabitants. There was a crowd on the bank similar to the one at Igun. Most of the women and girls standing with their arms folded in their sleeves. Several were seated close to the water and met the same misfortune as those in similar positions at Igun. The Korsakov made a much greater swell than the Ingona, and those who caught its effects were well moistened. We landed from the steamer's boat and ascended the bank to the village. Several fat old managers eyed us closely and answered with great brevity our various questions. Sakhalinola stretches more than a mile along the bank, but extends only a few rods back from the river. Practically it consists of a single street, which is quite narrow in several places. The houses are like those of Igun, with frames of logs and coverings of boards, or with log walls plastered with mud. The windows of stores and dwellings are of lattice work covered with oiled paper, glass being rarely used. The roofs of the buildings were covered with thatch of wheat straw several inches thick, that must offer excellent facilities for taking fire. Probably the character of this thatch accounts for the chimneys rising 10 or 15 feet from the buildings. 
I saw several men arranging one of these roofs. On a foundation of poles they lay bundles of straw, overlapping them as we overlap shingles, and cutting the boards to allow the straw to spread evenly. This kind of covering must be renewed every two or three years. Several thatches were very much decayed, and in one of them there was a fair growth of grass. The village was embowered in trees in contrast to the Russian shore where the only trees were those in the park. I endeavored to ascertain the cause of this difference, but could not. The Russians said there was often a variation of three or four degrees in the temperature of the two banks, the Chinese one being the milder. Timber for both Chinese and Russian use is cut in the forests of the Amur and rafted down. Sakhalinola abounded in vegetable gardens, which supplied the market of Blagoveshensk. The number of shops both there and at Igu led me to consider the managers a population of shopkeepers. Dr. Snyder said they brought him everything for ordinary table use, and would contract to furnish at less than the regular price, any article sold by the Russian merchants. In their enterprise and mode of dealing they were much like the Jews of Europe and America, which may account for their being called managers. Once a month during the full moon they come to Blagoveshensk and open a fair, which continues seven days. They sell flour, buckwheat, beans, poultry, eggs, vegetables, and other edible articles. The Russians usually purchase a month's supply at these times, but when they wish anything out of the fair season the managers are ready to furnish it. We walked along a narrow street, less muddy than the streets of Igun, and passed several cattle yards enclosed with high fences, like California corrals. In one yard there were cattle and horses, so densely packed that they could not kick freely. Groups of natives stared at us while smoking their little pipes, and doubtless wondered why we came there. Several eyed me closely and asked my companions who and what I could be. The explanation that I was American conveyed no information, as very few of them ever heard of the land of the free and the former home of the slave. One large building with a yard in front and an inscription over its gate was pointed out as a government office. Several employees of the Emperor of China were standing at the gateway all smoking and enjoying the evening air. At a hitching post outside the gate there were three saddled horses of a breed not unlike the Canadian. The saddles would be uncomfortable to an American cavalry officer, though not so to a Comanche Indian. According to my recollection of our equestrian savage I think his saddle is not much unlike the Mongolians. Beyond this establishment we entered a yard in front of a new and well-built house. Near the door was the traveling carriage of the governor of Igun who had arrived only an hour or two before. The carriage was a two-wheeled affair, not long enough to permit one to lie at full length nor high enough to sit bolt upright. It had no springs, the frame resting fairly on the axles. The top was rounded like that of a butcher's cart and the sides were curtained with blue cloth that had little windows or peep holes. I looked behind the curtain and saw that the sides and bottom were cushioned to diminish the effect of jolting. Two or three small pillows, round and hard, evidently served to fill vacancies and wedge the occupant in his place. The shafts were like those of a common dray, and the driver's position was on a sort of shelf within ten inches of the horse's tail. There was room for a postillion on the shelf with the driver, the two sitting back to back and their legs hanging over the side. The wheel tires were slightly cocked as if made for use in a machine, and altogether the vehicle did not impress me as a comfortable one. Being without springs it gives the occupant the benefit of all jolting, and as the Chinese roads are execrable, I imagine one might feel after a hundred miles in such a conveyance very much as if emerging from an encounter with a champion prize fighter.
Sometimes the Chinese officials set the wheels of their carts very far aft so as to get a little spring from the long shafts. Even with this improvement the carriage is uncomfortable, and it is no wonder that the Chinese never travel when they can avoid it. Entering a hall that led to a larger apartment, we reached the presence of the governor of Igun. He was seated on a mat near the edge of a wide divan, his legs crossed like a tailor's at his work. He was in a suit of light-colored silk, with a conical hat bearing a crystal ball on the top. It is generally understood that the grade of a Chinese official may be known by the ball he wears on his hat. Thus there are red, blue, white, yellow, green, crystal, copper, brass, etc. According to the rank of the wearer, these balls take the place of the shoulder strap and epaulets of Western civilization, and it must be admitted that they occupy the most conspicuous position one could select. As I am not versed in details of the orders of Chinese rank I will not attempt to give the military and civil status of my new acquaintance. I learned that he was a general in the army had displayed skill and bravery in subduing the rebellion, and been personally decorated by the emperor. He was enjoying his pipe and a cup of tea, resting the latter on a little table at his side. He was an old man, of how many years I dare not try to guess, with a thin gray beard on his short chin, and a face that might have been worn by the night of the sorrowful countenance. I was introduced as an American who had come to see China, and especially the portion bordering on the Amur. We shook hands and I was motioned to a seat at his side on the edge of the divan. Tea and cigars opened the way to a slow fire of conversation. I spoke in French with Borstein, who rendered my words in Russian to the governor's interpreter. The principal remarks were that we were mutually enchanted to see each other, and that I was delighted at my visit to Igun and Sakhalinola. Several officials entered and bowed low before the governor, shaking their clenched hands at him during the obeisance. One wore a red and another a yellow ball, the first being in a black uniform and the second in a white one. The principal feature of each uniform was a long coat reaching below the knees, with a cape like the capes of our military cloaks. Both dresses were of silk, and the material was of excellent quality. The floor of the room was of clay, beaten smooth and cleanly swept. The furniture consisted of the divan before mentioned, with two or three rolls of bedding upon it, a Chinese table and two Chinese and three Russian chairs. The walls were covered with various devices produced from the Oriental brain, and an American clock and a French mirror showed how the Celestials have become demoralized by commerce with outside barbarians. The odor from the kitchen filled the room, and as we thought the governor might be waiting for his supper, we bade him good evening and returned to the boat and the Russian shore. During my stay at Blagoveshchensk I was invited to assist at a visit made by the governor of Igun to Colonel Pideshank. The latter sent his carriage at the appointed hour to bring the Chinese dignitary and his chief of staff. A retinue of ten or twelve officers followed on foot, and on entering the audience hall they remained standing near the door. The greetings and handshakings were in the European style, and after they were ended the Chinese governor took a seat and received his pipe from his pipe bearer. He wore a plain dress of gray silk and a doublet or cape of bloom with embroidery along the front. He did not wear his decorations. The visit being an official, in addition to the ball on his head he wore a plume or feather that stood in a horizontal position. His chief of staff was the most elaborately dressed man of the party, his robes being more gaily decorated than the governor's. The members of the staff wore mandarin balls of different colors, and all had feathers in their hats. The governor's hair was carefully done up, and I suspect his queue was lengthened with black silk. 
conversation was carried on through the colonel's interpreter, and ran upon various topics. General Busey's death was mentioned in terms of regret, and then followed an interchange of compliments between the two governors who met for the first time. After this the Chinese governor spoke of my visit to Sakhalinola, and said I was the first American he ever met in his province. How did I come from America? He asked. And how far had I traveled to reach Blagoveshensk? The interpreter named the distance and said I came to the Amur in a ship connected with the telegraph service. When would the telegraph be finished? He was told that within two or three years they would probably be able to send messages direct to America. Then he asked if the railway would not soon follow the telegraph. He had never seen either, but understood perfectly their manner of working. He expressed himself pleased at the progress of the telegraph enterprise, but did not intimate that China desired anything of the kind. The interview lasted about an hour, and ended with a leave-taking after the European manner. There is much complaint among the Russians that the Treaty of 1860 is not carried out by the Chinese. It is stipulated that trade shall be free along the entire boundary between the two empires, and that merchants can enter either country at will. The Chinese merchants are not free to leave their own territory and visit Russia, but are subject to various annoyances at the hands of their own officials. I was repeatedly informed at Blagoveshensk that the restrictions upon commerce were very serious and indirect violation of the stipulations. One gentleman told me, every manager trader that brings anything here pays a tax of 20 to 50 percent for permission to cross the river. We pay now a third more for what we purchase than when we first settled here. The merchants complain of the restriction, and sometimes, though rarely, manage to evade it. Occasionally a manager comes to me offering an article 20 or 30 percent below his usual price, explaining that he smuggled it and requesting me not to expose him. I asked if the taxation was made by the Chinese government, and was answered in the negative. The police of Idun and Sakhalinola regulate the whole matter. It is purely a blackmail system, and the merchant who refuses to pay will be thrown into prison on some frivolous charge. The police master of Idun has a small salary but has grown very wealthy in a few years. The Russian and Chinese governors have considered the affair several times, but accomplish nothing. On such occasions the Chinese governor summons his police master and asks him if there is any truth in the charges of the corruption of his subordinates. Of course he declares if, 